I think one of the most important things you can do as an HR leader in a company is advise a CEO, a board, and an executive team on how to improve and look at leadership and make sure the company is positioned from the bottoms up in a culture and operating principles that enable a company to function well by action, not by default. I think you have to define what should be good milestones to evaluate whether what you're doing is actually making sense. A company has to be willing to change everything. And when you're willing to innovate on everything, it's a certain kind of DNA. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon, managing partner at GGV Capital. I'm joined by my good friend, Crystal Huang, as guest host. Today on Founder Real Talk, we have Jackie Reeses. Jackie runs Square Capital and is also Chief People Officer at Square. In her capacity as head of Square Capital, Jackie leads product, engineering, design, and she also has P&L responsibility for the unit. She joined Square in 2015 and was previously Chief Development Officer at Yahoo, working directly with Marissa Meyer. Prior to that, she was a private equity executive at Apex Partners and at Goldman Sachs before that, which is where Jackie and I first met. I was older, and Jackie must have been very young because she's much younger than me now. Exactly. Jackie, we're super excited to have you here on Founder Real Talk. Thank you so much for coming. Oh, happy to be here. So our first question for you, you spent you know, several years at Goldman and then joined Apex and became a really successful private equity exec there. That's a dream landing job for many people. What led you to move your family across the country and then join Yahoo in an operating role? I had a midlife crisis without the crisis. I mean, that's the honest answer, which is... I had invested for 25 years after graduating from college. I went to Wharton. I got the dream job working at Goldman M&A when it was a small private partnership. And I ended up pursuing an incredibly linear career. You go from Goldman M&A to Goldman PIA to working in a private equity firm, very prestigious and large firm at that And there's a point in time after doing M&A deals for 20 years and investing in companies when it just gets rote. By the way, Goldman chewed me up and spit me out of for two years, and Jackie lasted like nearly a decade. (laughs) I did. So that should tell you something about her fortitude. No, I loved it. And I loved investing. And I think it's very hard. But I took away a lot of people skills from investing, even more than the quantitative skills, which I'm happy to talk about. It explains why I run HR after having worked on Wall Street for 20 years. But the reality is, after doing the same thing, which is buying and selling companies, I just wanted something different to do. So I thought about either moving to China or moving to California because I wanted to kind of run into the fire. So that was how I ended up moving out to California to work at Yahoo. Can you summarize some of you know the main differences uh, between you know being an operator and versus being in PE, even if you were involved in operations, right, in your portfolio? Um, and what surprised you about joining Yahoo initially? You know, as an investor, you have an interesting strategic view at the top level of a company, and when you buy very large companies, which is what I did, I'd buy a ten billion dollar business. You usually are looking at things like hiring, firing, management teams, finding levers of growth in order to build the business, but you're evaluating a business only at a strategic board level. And you dig into issues where you see things that need to concern you, usually where things aren't going well. 
and you feel a bit removed from the day-to-day execution and a little bit exposed and vulnerable to the execution capabilities of the CEO who runs the company. And so where you like to get your hands dirty, which is the way I have always been, it is a little less satisfying over time, particularly the bigger your teams become and the more removed you are from the weeds of an operation. And so I wanted to be more focused on the operations and more focused on some of the bigger problems, which is why I wanted to make the switch from investing to operating. I also, just by personal passion, was very curious. And so I wanted to run into the fire of what I saw to be incredibly challenging operating problems. And that seemed more fun to me than dealing with stasis. Well, you definitely chose a fire running to Yahoo. And your your role morphed there over time, right? You came in really running M&A and over time had people ops or HR responsibilities as well. That's a kind of uncommon combination. Can you talk a little bit about how that happened and what the progression was like at Yahoo and as, as your span of control changed over time? Yeah, so I had an unusual portfolio. But going back to this issue where you think about what a private equity investor is good at, It's a very strategic level thought process across a company. So I actually did the inverse, which is I was hired to run HR. You know, HR was an interesting vehicle from which to think about restructuring a business. And so then I ended up being the private equity investor that sat in the company as opposed to one that would sit outside and help restructure operations. And so I focused on things like closing offices, reorienting who we hired, where we hired them, looking at what businesses we were in, how to increase scope, decrease scope. And I think those are typical thought processes that a private equity investor would absolutely look at as ordinary course investment strategy on the private equity side. And interestingly, I was also very willing to dig deep on the HR side And that could be something as mundane as I could tell you what the monthly payroll deductions were in someone's paycheck because I set the budget for healthcare expense on all the employees. Or it could be something as strategic as what businesses should we be in and why? Or how do we deal with the Asian assets at Yahoo? Which frankly was one of the most complex corporate structuring problems in corporate America, one of the biggest tax issues in corporate America. And so when you actually think about the skill set of private equity, it made more sense to be using those skills in a corporate context. And so I ran HR, M&A, BD, and BD is the search affiliate business, so very large business at Yahoo. I sat on the board of Alibaba, was involved with the Asian assets, had fun, it was great. That's a good. really amazing story. Should this be the new prototype for uh, heads of people and Silicon Valley companies go hire PE execs? Or uh, yeah, do you I think, think you're a one-off? I don't know. I think it's an interesting background from which to draw from. I also appreciate the substance and skill of people who grow up in the HR function and would never want to diminish the career path that they take in order to become a head of HR. But I do think I have a very business-driven perspective with which to see how to move leadership forward. And I think that's, frankly, one of the most important things you can do as an HR leader in a company, which is advise a CEO, a board, and an executive team on how to improve and look at leadership. 
and make sure the company is positioned from the bottoms up in a culture and operating principles that enable a company to function well by action, not by default. And so I do think my background is highly relevant to that type of role. More on the topic of Yahoo, there must have been, you know, some challenges faced there during your time there, to, to say the least. And, you know, oftentimes there's a, you know, startups are all about, you know, momentum or the perception of momentum. And once you sort of lose that, it's kind of hard to recover, right? Or to, you know, rebuild the recruiting and sort of customer awareness and positioning in the market. How do you navigate all that? And what lessons have you learned that you can share? I would pick a few things out, although there are so many lessons learned from that experience um, that were just absolutely incredible, both on the Yahoo side as well as the Alibaba side, and I can talk about that later. I think um, probably three observations. One, when you see a business that is having challenges and a business is in transition, you got to think about whether there's some group of assets that are worth keeping and some that you need to restructure away. And I would get laser focused on the ones you want to keep. And things you don't want to invest in, you should think about just shutting them down, selling them, getting them out of the operations. Because where you have too many business lines that distract your thinking and require attention, you end up biasing towards those that are most challenged versus those that you want to invest in. And I think Companies should be much stricter about deciding in a challenge situation what you're keeping, what you're not. We did this once at Apex, most significantly on the turnaround of Tommy Hilfiger, where we literally shut down the U.S. operations of Tommy Hilfiger and rebuilt starting from Europe. And so that was a pretty bold bet to decide to shut down an operating U.S. business but because of significant declines in the business, reframing of the brand, whole bunch of personnel issues, it was a perfect example of how you have to cut in order to grow. The second thing is pick milestones that are meaningful along a journey. So if you're on a really long journey to a transformation, you might want to have years of expressing and making change across that journey. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. Long-term thinking is far better in terms of pushing out the envelope of how you're going to change a business as opposed to really thinking short-term. But I think you have to define what should be good milestones to evaluate whether what you're doing is actually making sense. And they don't have to be financial milestones, but they should be some operating metric or some dynamic that enables you to judge in an in a reasonable amount of time are the changes I'm making actually working? And I think that's incredibly important in a situation like that. And then third, when you're attempting to build trust as a leader, don't ruin it. Really pay attention to how you build trust in your employee base, how you bring them along in an honest and transparent way, because people smell BS. And where you are not being open and honest with people who are investing their heart and soul and want to win and want to see a transformation you really have to bring them along in an honest way and make sure they have the ability to kind of own the problem with you and want to invest their own energy and entrepreneurialism in solving the problem. And I think that's incredibly important when you're trying to bring people along in these challenging operating situations. I also think those issues are applicable to any startup. I was going to say that those actually sound like great words of uh, wisdom for startups. Stay focused. Right, and if you have parts of your business that aren't as good, 
don't focus on them and, and focus on where you can really drive value. One, yep. two, you got to be long term in your thinking if you're a startup and you want to build something big and really uh, foundational. But you know, hold your feet to the fire Absolutely. about milestones and and sometimes the VC you know process of raising subsequent rounds actually helps you do that. And three, you know, if you're a leader, you got to be accountable. You got to be transparent, and you got to you know build a culture that people are going to believe in because it's not an easy ride. So it's actually you know quite similar turnaround to startups. Startups, yeah, I agree. Much That's better cool. synthesis though. <laughs> So let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Square. You and I know each other pretty well, and I remember having a conversation with you when you were starting to think about other alternatives. Uh, I think you're the Yahoo. reason I'm at Square, actually. Okay, well, uh, Starbucks conversation yes, at Sharon I, Heights. I, I remember that Starbucks conversation. But we, we didn't give Glenn a finder's fee. That yeah, I, I need to, I need to go. To, I need to talk to Jack and Sarah <laughs> about that. Uh, as venture investors, GGV is very happy with your decision to go to Square. But tell us a little bit about what appealed to you about the Square Capital opportunity. You know, it was a big decision to go join there and be curious to understand what was appealing. It must have been very gratifying or seemed like it would be gratifying to go help lots of startup businesses. So tell us a little bit about the business and what appealed to it. Sure. Square Capital is an amazing business inside Square. We offer small business loans primarily to sellers that are on the Square system. And we're able to do that in a very creative way in that we're able to pre-underwrite to sellers because we have proprietary data that enables us to both make sure that the seller is creditworthy and secondarily make sure we're offering them a loan that is appropriately sized for the scale of their business and their expected revenue. And so having that insight is incredibly unique. We're also working with the seller at a moment when they are in the middle of transactions. And that helps us in two ways. First, it helps us communicate with them to to express the offer. Would you like to have a loan? And they're in the middle of looking at a dashboard that's related to their financial transactions. It's contextual. It's relevant. They're focused on their business operations. And so we're there offering the capital when they need it. And then It also is really relevant because it makes the product somewhat magical. And it's magical because as a seller clicks through three screens, they accept a loan offer. We then accept payment based on card swipes that come through the Square payment terminal every day. And so it's an incredibly fluid and easy process from which to pay back a loan And it flexes as the business flexes. So if a seller's business is incredibly busy in one month, they'll pay back a little bit more. If it's slower, they'll pay back less. And it gives very small businesses the flexibility they need to have capital. They want to help grow their business, buy inventory, use it for working capital. And so it's really an incredible business. And When I was looking at different opportunities, first, I was very comfortable working for someone. I came from a very entrepreneurial background, grew up in a partnership at Apex Partners. And so the idea of working for someone is probably the first step I went through as to whether that was something I wanted to do. And then second, whether I wanted to be an operator. And what I liked about Square is the quality of the people. And I think it's a very unusual company from a leadership point of view. And then when you get into the weeds of how the company operates and the culture and the dynamism, it's a pretty special place. And so I feel very lucky to be a part of that 
environment. And I also feel very lucky to also help shape it, which is fun. And so I went to Square Capital when it had no more than a dozen employees and it looked like a rocket ship. And so I was super happy to go from a very large scope of doing multi-billion dollar deals, working on all the Alibaba trades, dealing with huge tax structures, this a very unusual portfolio, as you described, to you know, 12 people trying to build a lending business. Lending money to uh, you know, two and three unit pizza chains. I know. Very well, you different. know, I grew up, I'm from Atlantic City, and I grew up in a very entrepreneurial environment. I think I'm the only person to really work for anybody in my family. Everyone in my family are entrepreneurs, uh, mother, grandmother, cousins. And so I am used to an incredibly entrepreneurial family of small business owners. And when I was little, I used to wrap holiday presents at the cash register of my mom's pharmacy. And so I am so used to that really small business environment. On Christmas, my father used to take me to liquid oxygen deliveries. He owned a medical supply business. And we always used to work on Christmas and do emergency deliveries to elderly folks who needed, you know, some Mm. medicine, oxygen, you name it. And my dad would take me along with him. So I like it. It kind of feels like going back to home. It's also, the reality is I run a fixed income business as well. And so it's also a little bit of going back to the future with my leveraged finance background in private equity. So you started talking a little bit about um, team building at Square Capital. So let's zoom in on that. You joined the team when it was pretty small and you had to obviously build out this team that's now really large. How did you go about finding the initial people for you know, a pretty new product? And did you inherit a team that you, know, you had to change the strategy and the hiring and some of the people? Like, Just talk about the early days of hiring. Yeah, I'll talk about Capital instead of Square because Capital is a startup inside of Square. We started with a handful of wonderful people, and a few of them are still the leaders of Capital today. And I think what we were focused on are a few things. First, we wanted to make sure we had the values of the team right about how we were going to collaborate, how we were going to work as an executive team, how we wanted to fit into the rest of Square as a startup within an overall very successful company. And we went out to find people who had incredible raw intelligence as leaders and adaptability, because it's not like you could go and find 20 years worth of skill in this particular field. And so we actually didn't hire for previous skill and previous experience in the field. We hired for agility, intelligence, kind of ability to bob and weave and apply creativity to business problems. And so that's the way we framed our leadership team. And we have a great team. We just added one new person, our new head of engineering. He's new. Um, Our prior head of engineering, we acquired his company four years prior, and he went back to do another startup. We were sad to see him go, but happy with who we hired as well. Great. Speaking of you know a brand new business and having to hire uh, for not for experience but for uh, a new set of skills and agility being one, we know that Square Capital makes ample use of modern data science and machine learning uh, algorithms. What's it like to manage a business that bases a lot of its decision making and sort of key decision points, I guess, on 
technology like that. Do you trust the black box completely? Do you have a human overlay? And how have you seen that evolve over time? And when, if you've ever had problems, if the technology leads you astray, how do you, how do you deal with that? Yeah, I think if you go back to lending, which is an absolutely commoditized business, and it's been around for thousands of years, right? I think you'd say to yourself, this has been around. It's in every country around the world. How do you make this super interesting? And the evolution and use of data is the unique element of our product that are kind of foundational parts of what makes it magic. And it exists because we're able to pre-underwrite all of our sellers and then get the loan size right so that we can actually prove that we can help them grow. And I think that's fascinating. I mean, intellectually super fascinating. And so we don't apply a human element on top of the underwriting because we think what we're doing analytically is so much better mm. than what was ever done. Now, interestingly, one of the other elements of our product that we like is who we serve. And so when you look at the demographic statistics of Square Capital, it's extraordinary. And so we truly are a bridge to the underserved in a way that no one else has been able to do. And so 54% of our loans facilitated are to female entrepreneurs. That's awesome. And 37% are to underrepresented minorities. And when you look at those numbers compared to lenders across the United States, they are night and day different to other small business lending models. And I think the reason why we're able to underwrite a previously underserved population is that the data that illustrates the success of a business really blinds the quote application in a way that's profound and then lets the business speak for itself. And that is pretty magic. It's almost like the technology takes the human heuristic element out of it and you get results that we want to see. Absolutely. I mean, we we still go back and look at it. You know, we make sure when we have our models that we are getting the outcomes we think we should whether that's by industry code, by business size, by location. And so we're quite thoughtful to do backtesting on all of our models to look at the analysis. But when you are able to underwrite the way we are, I think we're pretty comfortable with the success that we've achieved to date, particularly in small business lending, which isn't as well served by anyone relative to consumer. And at the very small end where our loan size is $6,000, very few people can serve that scale of product in a profitable way. Our, our smallest loan size goes down to $500. Incredible. So on the topic of best of breed or innovative technology, Square has continued to you know try to roll out new products and test out new things. And it's kind of hard to keep that strong R&D engine going in a late stage public successful company, right? So how do you, um, you know, create this culture of innovation even in a very large business? It's funny that you call us a large company <laughs> because I wouldn't have thought of us as a large company. I think of us as still a startup despite the success scale and at this point, market cap, I still think of it as a startup. And maybe that... When you measure market cap in the tens of billions, we start to think of you as no longer a startup, Jack. <laughs> yeah, well, I guess it's, it's very instructive, though, because we have a startup mindset and we have a mindset of ownership. And maybe that's the dynamic that leads 
to a, an ability to continue to innovate. I think it has to be in the DNA of the company. And one of my observations, which sounds so stupid when you say it, is that a company has to be willing to change everything. And when you're willing to change everything and innovate on everything, it's a certain kind of DNA. And maybe that, as I said, it sounds stupid sitting out here in San Francisco, but I don't think that is a principle that is applied across every company in the United States. And I think you'll usually find people complain that no one wants to change anything. And so inertia is a terrible thing in innovation. And so I like to be able to look at everything we do and say everything can change. And then you make sure that you don't let bureaucracy get in the way of execution. Mm. So let's pull on that thread a little, little further. And you're also chief people officer, you're head of people at Square. That, again, weird combination, uh, but you, have, you seem Fair. to have a penchant for this. Fair. Uh, you're running the lending <laughs> business and also running people. Um, I'm going to explain it, actually. Good. I'll explain it on this podcast. Good. <laughs> so obviously, you've got a culture where at, at Square where you know everything can change, right? And you're trying very hard to battle against entropy. So you know why is the culture the way it is? What have you had to do to protect it? And I'm really curious, given you're so quantitative and how you think about the world, whether that's helped you at all as as a people officer. Yeah. So, you know, I think innovation is part of the DNA of the company. I don't want to replicate what I just said because I truly believe it has to be the DNA. And I think at Square where you see businesses like Cash App, the core payments business, and Capital, each of which is an incredible business in its own right, you see that there is a path of innovation and a mindset towards taking principled risks. And I think that's super important is where you're willing to have that orientation. As it relates to people, I think being quantitative is helpful because a lot of the analysis you do and evaluating issues stems from a root cause and requires analysis and exploration. Oftentimes you find those things by looking at statistics on what's happening in a particular team, whether it be hiring, attrition, pulse results that give you a sense of how a particular team or the culture is operating and where you're able to look at those numbers and come up with insights from them. It's super helpful. Having said that, there is an element of it related to empathy and truly understanding what the team's struggle is. You know, what is it that the company most needs? And so you can't be blindly analytical without an empathy towards wanting to actually do right by everybody at the company. And it doesn't mean that you're the happy-go-lucky you know, pillow that everyone comes and cries to. But at the same time, I care greatly about what happens to everybody. And I am the defender for any one person at the company first on any issue to make sure that there is a voice of our employee base that is heard. And I feel like I am that defender no matter what. And I'll always bias towards that mm. in discussions so that we don't lose sight of who we're serving internally. And I do think that orientation is super important in addition to the analytical side. Wow, that's quite a mix. So on the topic of making you know every employee feel heard, you've really prioritized diversity and inclusion at Square. 
How have you, you know, done that and put programs together or set metrics to kind of drive that, you know, goal forward? We started with inclusion. And by that, we oriented towards focusing on people at Square first. Who do we have at Square from underrepresented backgrounds and how do they feel? And what could we do to make the experience at Square better? And then we changed out a lot of programs that we found were not actually serving that purpose, but frankly just made someone feel good. And that's usually an incredibly unpopular thing to do. (laughs) But what we wanted to do was add communities So give people an environment where they felt like they had a peer set that they could share experiences with. So we increased our community team budgets. We both expanded them in San Francisco and other offices and then expanded the numbers we had to address different community groups as they came forward. And we wanted to make sure they were well-funded and could do really fun events that highlighted who they were. So we just did a bunch of events for our Women at Community Group for International Women's Day. And we bring in speakers, we do art installations, and really make it fun so that people feel like you're celebrating the event. The month prior, we had Black Squares Association, and we did a bunch of things around poetry. There's a Maya Angelou poem that's literally all across the entire stairs of Square. It's gorgeous yeah, looking. If you go cool. look on everyone's tweets, it's an it's incredibly powerful. And we do culinary events, cocktail parties, speakers. It just makes it fun to be at Square. It feels very inclusive. And we've done surveys to see whether we have issues on teams to try to find places where teams might have a less inclusive attitude. And then we've done some more HR work with teams like that. And then on the flip side, we've gone to hiring and we've hired sourcers who we think can source from diverse community groups across the country and looked at sponsoring different events like Dev Color, which we just partnered with, Grace Hopper, where we love going to the Grace Hopper conference every year. And so we've tried to pick our spots at where we see value And where people at Square feel passionate that they want to be affiliated with a group and they want to sponsor a group of people to come down and do a recruiting event or an event that's just intellectually interesting for a population at Square. Awesome. So we end every episode with a few hot seat questions. Just give us the first thing that comes to mind and we'll do this pretty quickly. Tell us about your best hire ever and why was this person so great? My best hire ever was a person who is absolutely brilliant, capable of anything, totally humble, you know, and just an absolutely wonderful person. And to be honest, I could say that across a bunch of people. And I have been so lucky to work with a handful of people across multiple roles. And the team that we have, I absolutely love. I could see being friends with my team for a long time, just wonderful, wonderful, wickedly smart, decent human beings who make a great team. And what I love also about the team, I know this is not the hot seat, you're like giving me that that's not a hot seat answer, is that people are willing to debate with the best of intentions. And that is a really interesting and unique team dynamic. Okay, I'll so, answer with one word from here on out. <laughs> no, no, that, that was great. That was great. But let me follow up on that. Next hot seat question. What's your best interview question? 
that you have in your arsenal and why is it so good? What's the perception of you that you think is most wrong and why? Mm. I like that question. I also have a new one that came from the book Creative Confidence, which is what's your failure resume? What would your resume look like of your failures? Mm. Have you asked that one to anybody? Not yet, but okay. I just read the book. We did it. We have a book club at, on our executive team called The Square Readers. You got to love the pun. Absolutely. That's and great. Isn't that good? Caitlin, Jack's assistant, came up with that, uh, that idea. So we're The Square Readers. We read Creative Confidence on Monday. And that notion came out of that book, and I am obsessed with this latest question. I'm going to see whether we could deploy that on the recruiting side. I'm glad I'm not interviewing for a job with you anytime soon. (laughs) Now you're ready. Do you have your failure resume? I have to think about it. I have a long list of failures. (laughs) So you've worked for two really powerhouse CEOs, Marissa Mayer and Jack Dorsey. Uh, What's the top quality you look for in a leader? Probably invention. Great. Okay, last question for you, Jackie. You're a super well-informed person, and we're really curious always to understand where people like yourself get their information. What's like your favorite book or blog or thing you, you read to keep up with all your great insights? I'm a total news junkie. I'm on the board of NPR, so of course NPR. I'm on the board for a reason. New York Times, FT, Wall Street Journal, I read every morning. I watch... Uh, my Twitter feed all the time for interesting stories that come out of China or Israel because I get really interesting news from there that's a little more differentiated. And I'm just an obsessive news reader. How about book? I've only recently read a lot of books, I'll be honest with you. I'm a mom of three kids with a crazy job and some board roles. So I've only recently become reliterate after my kids reached the age where I wasn't exhausted after putting the last one to bed. Where you weren't reading Goodnight Moon. Yeah. yeah. I, uh, Snuggle Puppy is my favorite kid's book. My favorite book is Sapiens. Um, oh, I, I, I became obsessed with that book actually last year because I think it's really instructive about religion and what's happening in cryptocurrency. So I'm totally fascinated with it, but I'm really more of a news junkie than I am a book reader. Great. Jackie, thanks so much for joining us on Founder Real Talk. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, you can find all our episodes on founderrealtalk.ggvc.com or at Apple Podcasts, Overcast, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. Please rate us and share as well to help others find this podcast. We're produced by Ted Karstensen and his team at HeavyBit. We want to thank Ted for his support. Our theme song is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a multi-stage venture capital firm based in Silicon Valley, Shanghai, and Beijing. We've been partnering with leading technology entrepreneurs since 2000, from seed to pre-IPO. We invest in globally-minded entrepreneurs in consumer internet, e-commerce, frontier tech, and enterprise, and have invested in over 300 companies since inception, including the likes of Airbnb, Alibaba, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Slack, Square, Wish, and many others. We're very proud of the 30 companies who've achieved multi-billion dollar valuations to date, and we expect several more in the future. Find out more at ggvc.com. If you have any feedback or ideas for future guests, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Thanks for listening.